Good evening, everyone. It is, it is lovely to be back here again, and it's also lovely to once again be off the I-5. <laughs> As you've, you've heard from a little bit of an int introduction about me, I'm a software engineer in San Diego. I'm the co-host of The Eagle and Child, a podcast about the Christian author and apologist C.S. Lewis, and I also write at my blog called RestlessPilgrim.net, where I talk about sacred scripture, church history, and tonight's subject, apologetics. Tonight's talk is the second of two presentations I've been asked to give here at St. Ignatius during this Lenten season, and I have to say I've really enjoyed being your penance. <laughs> I just don't know what you did. It must have been bad. <laughs> Last week's talk was how to read the Bible like a Catholic. I spoke a little bit about how sacred scripture has played an important role in my own faith journey. And we looked at the Catholic perspective on scripture. And we spent most of our time looking at how we can get more out of the scripture that we hear at Sunday Mass. So, out of interest, how did Mass go last week? Did anyone read the readings beforehand? Excellent. Okay. Anyone pray for the priests and lectors before they came up? Did anyone follow along in the Missalette? Okay, did, uh, did anyone start a mass journal? That's, that's above and beyond right there. Well, well excellent. And uh, what about brunch? Did anyone go to brunch afterwards and invite friends? Oh, perfect. Now, for the rest of you, I spoke to Father and he said he'd be back along later so you can go to confession to him then. <laughs> now, as I said, on one of the subjects I write about on my blog is apologetics. And that is the subject for today's talk. And the title of this talk is Apologetics for the Confused. And it's normally a follow-on talk to a different presentation I give called Evangelization for the Terrified. <laughs> so therefore, I'm gonna spend a little bit of time this evening going through at a high level the material that I cover in that earlier talk on evangelization. Because I don't think we can really talk about apologetics until we've first spoken about evangelization. And once we've done that, we're gonna look at what apologetics actually is and the different kinds of apologetics out there. And finally, I'm gonna give you a number of principles to follow as you are out there doing apologetics. Have any of you ever been challenged concerning your faith, about your belief in God, your faith in Jesus, or Catholic teaching or practice, or Catholic morality in general? Yeah, I think it's pretty, a pretty common experience. Well, during the Q&A at the end, please feel free to present any of the challenges that you've received. I'm envisaging it to be something like a workshop. We can look at the, at the challenge, look at the question, and we can discuss it and talk about how we could set about answering this kind of objection or question in a way that's logical, accessible, and persuasive. But if we're gonna be talking to people about Jesus, we should also talk to Jesus. So before we continue, we should pray. This week I'd like to read the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, which I think is very appropriate given the subject matter tonight. So if you'll please join me in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, 
Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Amen. St. Francis, pray for us. St. Therese of Lisieux, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me begin tonight by asking a question. What is the point of the church? I mean, what's its purpose? What is it here for? Put simply, the purpose of the church is to evangelize, to tell people about Jesus. In 1975, Pope Paul VI, he wrote an encyclical, a letter to the bishops. And in Latin, it's called Evangelii Nuntiandi, and in English, Evangelization in the Modern World. In this letter, he writes the following. The task of evangelizing all people constitutes the essential mission of the church. It is the vocation proper to the church, her deepest identity. The church exists in order to evangelize. So if that's the purpose of the church, what does that mean for each and every Christian? Yeah, it means that each and every Christian is a missionary and an evangelist. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. In your day-to-day -day life, you are called to be a missionary. Put simply, Jesus is calling you to change the world. Has anyone here seen the X-Men movies? Oh, I'm very enthusiastic, I like it. <laughs> if you haven't seen them, they are a series of admittedly amazing movies about people with superpowers. And they're led by a man called Professor Xavier, who has the ability to read minds. And he also happens to have some English blood in him. <laughs> now, little did you know, but I also have the ability to read minds. A moment ago, while I was saying that you are each called to be an evangelist and an missionary and to change the world, I could hear what you were thinking. What, me? An evangelist? Maybe other people, but not me. I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know what to say. I would look stupid. I don't know my faith well enough. I might get asked a question I don't understand. I'm not far off, right? That was the sort of thing that you were thinking. And it's very understandable. Because honestly, every time I'm called upon to share my faith, to give a talk, <laughs> the same sorts of thoughts come to my mind. Now, why are we afraid? I think it's for two main reasons. The first one is we don't really know where to start. Where do we begin with this whole evangelization thing? And the second reason is we don't think we're up to it. We don't think that we're up to the challenge. But I've got some good news for you on both of those scores. The first one is you're here tonight. And tonight I'm gonna to be sharing you, with you some practical ways of beginning evangelization. And the second and honestly far more important piece of good news is that it's Jesus who is calling you to be an evangelist, to be a missionary. And if Jesus is calling you to something, he's gonna equip you and he's gonna be with you as you do it. My favorite Bible verse is 2 Corinthians chapter 19, verse two. 
St. Paul has been praying to the Lord, and the Lord says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So if you feel like this isn't something you can really do, that's a good thing. It leaves more room for God's grace and for the Holy Spirit to act. But what actually is evangelization? I would say it's anything that draws people closer to Jesus. Anything that communicates to people that they were made by God, that they're loved by God, and that God wants a relationship with them through his body, the church. And we evangelize in both word and deed by what we say, but in particular by what we do. Because a life lived in stark contrast to the standards of this world speaks much more powerfully than some moralizing sermon. Actions are really important, but we have to be careful we don't delude ourselves. I know I've certainly done this for years. I would say, oh, I don't preach with words. I preach by my actions. And then one day, one of my friends asked me, hey, David, what is it that you think that you do that, and the way that you live your life that causes other people to reconsider theirs? How is it that you live your life that people see Jesus so clearly in you? Honestly, this question caught me completely off guard. So I had a, a quick think, and I came up with it. I am nice. <laughs> My friend didn't look very impressed. So I had another quick think. I'm also polite. I am nice and polite. That's how I evangelize. Now, I'm not putting down being nice and being polite. These are good things. But I don't think it's going to quite cut it when it comes to the proclamation of the kingdom. Once again, let me quote Pope Paul VI. He says, The good news proclaimed in the witness of life, sooner or later, has to be proclaimed by the word of life. There is no true evangelization if the name, teaching, life, the promises, the kingdom, and the mystery of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, are not proclaimed. So actions are important, but we must not think that we will never need to speak. There will come a time. Here's something reassuring. I can promise you that each one of you has already been evangelical. Who here has seen an amazing movie or had a great meal at a restaurant? Did you check in on Facebook? Did you take pictures of the food and post it on Instagram? Did you talk to your friends about it and the people at work the following Monday? Now, why are we evangelical in those areas? Well, it's because we really truly believe that other people's lives would be better for knowing this. They really need to know the place to get the best taco. They need to know that the latest Star Wars movie is actually pretty good. So all we need to do is to be evangelical about Christ. The very thing we should be evangelical about. The most important thing in the world. Because Christ calls us onto an adventure that's greater than any movie. And he invites us to a meal that is better than any other meal that we could ever have at the table of the Lord in the Eucharist. Perhaps it's worth thinking, why do we evangelize? It should simply be because we think Catholicism is true and we think that other people's lives would be better if they became Catholic. Can we say that? Do I truly believe that Catholicism is true? Do I truly believe that I actually have something to share do I truly believe 
that the lives of others, both here and in eternity, would be better if they became Catholic. Because unless we can answer yes to all of those questions, we're going to have difficulty when we try and evangelize. How will we convince others if we ourselves are not truly convinced? Now, how do we evangelize? In the evangelization talk, I spend much more time on this. But since I'm using this primarily as a means to get to talk about apologetics, I'm just going to be brief. And feel free to ask about this in the Q&A if it particularly interests you. So how do we evangelize? By living a joy-filled Catholic life. And sometimes this means being countercultural, standing out from the crowd. And we evangelize by praying, praying for opportunities to share our faith. Because not only is it more likely that we will have opportunities to share our faith, when they crop up, we will be ready. And by the way, I'm not talking about artificially crowbarring Catholicism into every conversation. It's not like I'm at work and ask somebody, hey, I'm going to the water cooler. Would you like a glass of water? By the way, do you know who walked on water? Jesus, that's who. Hey, why don't you go to Mass? I think we can do a little better than that. Now, all of this is fine and wonderful up until the point that we meet some resistance and some criticism. And I think this is what scares a lot of us. And it causes us to never speak up in the first place. And that's a tragedy, particularly because this is where apologetics steps in. So what is apologetics? Apologetics has nothing to do with saying that we're sorry for something, which is probably a good thing, because I'm not very good at that. I rarely have the opportunity, you know? Apologetics, it comes from the Greek word apologia, and it means a defense. The classic text for this is 1 Peter 3.15. And in this letter, St. Peter, our first pope, says, always be prepared to make a defense, an apologia in the Greek, to anyone who calls you for account for the hope that you have within you, yet do it with gentleness and with reverence. So that means if you're an apologist, you are someone who gives a reply, a response, a defense for something that you believe in. And if you're a good apologist, you do it with gentleness and with reverence. And we see this throughout Scripture. If you read the Acts of the Apostles, this is what St. Paul did on his missionary journeys. He goes around and he reasons with the Jews in the synagogue and with the pagans in the market. And for our church's history, men have done this throughout the centuries, and women too. But some great ones, I'm thinking of St. Justin Martyr from the second century, St. Augustine from the fifth century, St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. And today in the 21st century, we have the team at Catholic Answers, Jimmy Aiken, Tim Staples, Trent Horn. We have a smart religion. Christianity and Catholicism in particular is not the religion where you check out your brain at the door. It's not about blind faith. Christianity and Catholicism is where faith and reason can come together. So that was apologetics. How does it relate to evangelization? And this part is particularly important. Apologetics is one of the tools for evangelization. It's one of the things that we use to clear obstacles away, to enable somebody to believe, to deal with their objections, but this is not the only tool in evangelization. 
It's one of many. It's neither the sum total of evangelization nor the Christian faith. Because some people, when they are first introduced to apologetics, they become over-enthusiastic. <laughs> they begin to think they can just argue people into the church, bludgeoning them over the head with arguments until they finally sign up for RCIA. When you get a shiny new hammer, everything looks like a nail. So where might you find yourself in a situation where you would need apologetics? This is not a rhetorical question. Where might you find yourself needing to defend your faith? The Jehovah's Witness that comes to your door. Yep. Knock, knock, knock. The Jehovah's Witness, the Mormon, comes to your door and they ask you if you're a Christian and whether you believe in the Bible. When else? Thanksgiving table. I actually have that one here. Yes, the Thanksgiving table. Because we all know Thanksgiving's nothing will make uh, for a peaceful and tranquil Thanksgiving like discussing religion. You can discuss politics over dessert. But also with just casual conversations with friends at work or in school. What about social media? You post a, a picture of your church or a saint quote, and then one of your friends leaves a particularly interesting comment. And the kind of belief systems you might find yourself coming up against might be atheism, agnosticism, some other religion like Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. They might belong to some quasi-Christian group like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. Or they could be some variety of Protestant, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Baptist. Because Protestantism, the belief system isn't uniform. Different groups believe different things. And when you're in these situations, you have a set of tools that you can draw upon. Logic, science, scripture, and history. And what I'd like to do now is look at the different areas of apologetics and see how we can use these tools to explain and defend our faith. There are four different kinds of apologetics, at least as I've listed them. The first is moral apologetics. This relates to right and wrong, different moral questions. There is then theistic apologetics. This relates to the question of the existence of God. And in this talk, I'm planning on spending a little bit more time here, just because I think it's something that we don't talk about enough. Next, we have Christian apologetics. So that's belief in Jesus and the core doctrines of Christianity. And finally, we have Catholic apologetics. And this focuses on the doctrines which are particular to Catholicism that aren't necessarily believed by all other Christians. So the first one, moral apologetics. This relates to lots of hot button issues contraception, abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. However, before we can even get to those issues, you might have to deal with people who don't even think that truth exists. Some people actually say this. They will claim that there's no such thing as either right or wrong. How many times have you heard someone say, well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. This is relativism and moral relativism as well. And when dealing with someone who holds this position, the best tool at our disposal is logic. Because moral relativism is self-refuting. It's incoherent in and of itself. Because what does it say? It makes truth claims that there are no truth claims. 
it makes an absolute statement that there are no absolute statements. A system that is logically incoherent in and of itself is most certainly false. So that's moral apologetics. Now, theistic apologetics. Once again, our common ground is logic. Because we don't want to start quoting from holy books that the person we're speaking to doesn't care about, that doesn't think they're inspired. Now, sometimes you might meet someone who says, well, I'm an atheist because there's no good evidence for God. Now, I don't think this is true, but let's just say it was. Is that a good reason to be an atheist? Let me ask a different question. Do we have proof of life on other planets at the moment? No. But wouldn't it be better to remain agnostic on that question? Evidence might appear. Likewise, if somebody isn't convinced that there's good evidence for God, he should really remain agnostic and be open to what evidence might crop up. But like I said, I think there is good evidence for the existence of God. For a start, there is this universe that exists that doesn't have to. And this universe appears to have been designed. There are finely tuned physical laws which allow for life. And in every other place where we see design, we assume that there is a designer. And not only that, we live in a universe where there is an objective moral law. We believe that some things are right, and we believe that some things are wrong. And the existence of a moral law points to a lawgiver, God. Now, there are many arguments for the existence of God, formal philosophical arguments. I'm just going to pick one. Point one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Point number two, the universe began to exist. What's the conclusion? That the universe has a cause. This is called the Kalam cosmological argument. So if this thing at the beginning creates time, space, and matter, what must we be able to say about the cause? It has to be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. It also has to be incredibly powerful to create the universe. And it also has to be personal, because the only thing that could be eternal and yet cause something like the universe to exist would have to be personal. Does this sound familiar? Timeless, spaceless, immaterial, all-powerful, and personal. What we're describing is God, or at least a thin enough wedge of him to disprove atheism. I've often met atheists who say something like, you don't need religion to be good. I don't need God to be good. And to an extent, I agree with them. I've known many atheists who are very good people, put a lot of Christians to shame. However, what do they mean when they talk about being good? Because if there is no God, well, goodness is purely relative to either the individual or the society. And what's the problem with that? We know individuals and we know societies who have been evil. I'm thinking of Hitler and the Holocaust. Can we say those things were evil? Or can we just, well, it's not evil because that doesn't exist. I just don't happen to like it. Could it be possible that in some other society, it would be a good thing to torture babies? Every fiber of our being says no. We're pointing to an objective moral law. And if there are absolute moral truths, they must transcend the individual and the society and must be rooted in something transcendent, like God. No doubt you will have come across somebody that 
tells you that science explains everything. In particular, evolution explains where life came from. Now, Catholic teaching doesn't deny and reject outright evolution. The church's position is that evolution may, in fact, explain where our bodies come from. Actually, a little over a year ago, I was walking across Spain. I was doing the Camino de Santiago. It's a pilgrimage, and I happened to bump into an atheist while I was there, as you do. And I asked him why he was an atheist, and he said he was an atheist because of the Big Bang and evolution. And so I explained to him that you don't have to reject evolution in order to be a Christian. And the Big Bang, the first person who formulated that was Father Georges Lemaitre, a Catholic priest and scientist. You're welcome. <laughs> However, all this begs the question, why do we live in a universe where something like evolution could exist at all? The odds of living in, an in, a, in a universe where such a thing is possible is like, it's got the same probability as correctly choosing a random atom in the universe. Which is more likely, that all this happened purely by chance, or the more intuitive, the more intuitive idea, there's a designer. I don't want to end this section without talking about the problem of evil, because I think this is an exceptionally powerful argument, at least emotionally. I think intellectually, it's not quite so great. But the argument goes like this. If God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good, how can evil exist? Isn't it just logical to conclude that he doesn't? But what is evil? Evil isn't a thing. It's a privation, a twisting, an absence. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But if we say there is a way that things are supposed to be, that implies that there's a designer. It implies that there is a God with a plan. And what evil is, is a departure from that plan. So what initially seems to be like an argument against God actually turns out to be an argument in favor of God. But doesn't this at least prove that he's not good or maybe not all powerful? I think it's first important to remember that things like courage can only exist in a universe where there is danger and free will, where people can choose the good or they can choose the evil. Even with hurricanes and earthquakes, if everybody, if, if all human beings really truly did love their neighbors themselves, this place would be a paradise. But also, Christians have always said that God will allow evil in order to bring out a greater good. Our example, par excellence, the cross. What seems to be the most horrific thing was actually the means of our salvation. As a story I like to tell, a man, he was a farmer, he had a number of horses, but one day, one of the fences broke and all the horses got out. And everyone in the village said, oh, what a tragedy, how terrible. The farmer said, maybe, we'll see. Then the next day, the horses came back and they brought with them a number of wild horses. And everyone in the village said, oh, how wonderful, how great. And the farmer said, maybe, we'll see. The next day, his son was breaking in one of these wild horses, and the horse bucked him, and he fell and broke his leg. And everyone in the village said, oh, what a tragedy. 
And what did the farmer say? Maybe, we'll see. The next day, the army came through their village, conscripting all the young men to go and fight in a war. But because his son had a broken leg, they had to leave him. The argument from evil, it only has real strength if the atheist can prove that God cannot bring a greater good out of some tragedy. And the thing is, we are often so poorly placed to be able to see the greater good that could come out of something terrible. I'm sure we see it sometimes. I'm sure each one of you can think of something in your life that initially seemed like a terrible disaster, but something wonderful actually came out of it. And so we sort of have to assume that that can be the case, even when we see that there's no good thing coming out of our current tragedy. Sometimes it might take even longer. Shen Horn from Catholic Answers told this story once in a debate. He said there was this woman who had the once-in-a-lifetime trip to travel to America. This was quite some time ago. She was in England, and she had the opportunity to travel to America. But her parents wouldn't let her go. She wept. She complained. This was the worst thing. Why did they hate her? I'm sure none of you have ever said anything like that to your parents. <laughs> but what if I told you that she was planning to travel to America by boat? And what if I said that the name of that boat was the Titanic? I mean, sure, she'd have got to meet Leonardo DiCaprio, but still. <laughs> and Trent is particularly grateful that that girl's parents wouldn't let her go because he ended up marrying one of her descendants. We are often very poorly placed to be able to see the consequences of even the worst of tragedies. So that was theistic apologetics. Now Christian apologetics. I just want to tell a little story here. A couple of years ago, I lived in Seattle, so I was used to this rain, and the engine had fallen out of my car, long story. So it was at the shop getting repaired. And the garage phoned me and told me that they had managed to get the engine back in the car. So I called for an Uber to take me back. My driver picked me up, and as I opened the door, I heard Arabic chant playing. I was as sure as I could be that this was from the Quran, the Muslim holy book. So I asked him about it. I've got to say, I was very impressed. This guy was ready to evangelize me. He asked probing questions. He explained a little bit about what he saw as the deficiencies of Christianity. And he started presenting to me the message of Islam. When I left, he even had leaflets in the glove box to give to me. In the time that I had with him, I responded to some of his objections. I explained how it is that we can trust the New Testament. And I also articulated a little bit more the doctrine of the Trinity, which was something that he didn't really understand. These were all the sorts of things that you have to deal with in Christian apologetics. So now lastly, Catholic apologetics. When it comes to speaking to non-Catholic Christians, we have much more in common. Principally, we have the Bible. And the question you'll most often hear from Protestants is, where's that in the Bible? Purgatory, Mary, praying to saints, Jesus being really present in the Eucharist. And they ask this question because virtually all Protestants believe in some form of sola scriptura. This is a doctrine that the Bible and the Bible alone is the sole infallible source of truth regarding the faith. Like I say, different denominations apply this doctrine a little differently. But either way, it's problematic for three reasons. 
The first is the Bible nowhere claims this doctrine. Nowhere does it teach it. Secondly, this is not how Christians have operated in history, long before the Reformation. And finally, it's logically inconsistent because the Bible doesn't tell you which books should be in the Bible. In fact, most Protestants typically don't know really where the Bible came from. It was discerned by Catholic theologians, by the early church fathers, and proclaimed and declared by Catholic councils. Just one last point about speaking to Protestants. Know your Bible. Many Protestants are under the impression that Catholics don't care about the Bible. Show them that we do. And if you want to learn how to do that, look on my blog, restlesspilgrim.net. This weekend, I'm going to be uploading last week's talk. And I've got other talks there about how we can come to know the Bible better. So those are each of the different areas of apologetics. And I'd like to spend the rest of our time looking at some guiding principles, principles to follow when you are conducting apologetics. Because honestly, we could do a week-long intensive course on just each one of those areas. There's many more things to say. There are common rebuttals that I would also like to address, but we're a little short on time, and I eventually have to go back to San Diego. <laughs> Principle number one. Everybody please say, listen. listen. Catholics, I said, the thing that makes us great is we say things in unison all the time. Everybody please say, listen. listen. There we go. <laughs> This is probably the most important thing in apologetics, listening. And that means not interrupting. And paying close attention to what someone is saying achieves two things. Firstly, it really helps you understand that person's core objection. I've lost track of the number of times that someone has tried to refute my faith, but they're addressing an issue I don't care about, something that's non-essential. So when you listen, you get to see what someone really cares about. What is the issue over which their objection turns? And the second thing about listening is it earns you the right to speak later. I listen to you. Please give me an opportunity to respond. And when it comes to your turn to speak, I recommend trying to re-articulate the core argument that you've just heard. Because sometimes if you ask somebody what you think of the Catholic Church or why aren't you Catholic, you're going to be sitting there for a while as they talk. You need to boil it down. And when you re-articulate their argument, it shows that to them that you've been paying attention, you've been listening. And when you do get to speak, don't lecture. Answer the questions that they've asked and present some of your own. Speaking of which, principle number two. Everyone please say, ask questions. Ask questions. I said, ask questions. <laughs> ask questions. Doesn't that sound nicer? Don't tell someone what they believe. Ask them questions. It's called the Socratic method. And when you hear the gospel proclaimed on Sunday, you'll hear Jesus doing this all the time. He asked questions. Questions are your best friend because it reduces the level of hostility. Rather than simply saying, well, that sounds stupid, you might say, how would you respond to somebody if they pointed out this problem with what you've just said? Or you're just making that up. Instead, you could say, on what are you basing that assumption? And asking questions moves you from the hot seat into the conversational driving seat. You get to direct the question. And when you ask questions, you allow people to discover the truth for themselves. 
and they're likely to be much more receptive to that than you simply telling them. And honestly, the best questions you can ask are, what do you believe, why do you believe that, and how do you know it's true? Principle number three, keep your cool. Keep your cool. Keep your cool. <laughs> when you're debating somebody, when you're talking about something, when you're discussing an issue that's particularly close to your heart, it's very easy to get frustrated and therefore angry. You begin to view the other person as the enemy. And this is the wrong attitude. You should just walk away, straight away. First and foremost, you need to see this other person as a beloved child of God, a fellow bearer of the divine image. So therefore, use their name. Look them in the eye. Smile. Show some teeth. And agree with them as much as possible. It's very rare you'll find somebody that you disagree with them about everything. If there are points of agreement, nod. Say, uh-huh. That way you can form a basis. You can find some common ground before you move on to the issues where you disagree. It's not a one-time encounter or a contest. It's not something that you win. You are there to share some truth with somebody that you hope will benefit them. If you're not there for that reason, you're doing apologetics wrong and you should just go home. We don't just want to be right. We want to bring people closer to Jesus. And someone who exemplifies this perfectly is my friend Joy. A while ago, I wrote about an interaction I had with some Jehovah's Witnesses who came to my door. And afterwards, I was speaking with Joy because we were in the same Bible study. And she said, yeah, I don't really want to do that. And then she told me what she does when they turn up. She first of all says, I think it's wonderful that you care so much about your faith, that you're willing to get up early while I'm still in bed and go around people's doors <laughs> and share your faith. But I should probably tell you, I'm Catholic and I love being Catholic, so you're probably wasting your time. But it's really hot out. Would you like to take some water with you as you go? Anyone who comes to her door will know that they have been treated with dignity and respect by a Catholic. She has shown Christ to them. And if any of you have ever done any door-to-door -door work, you'll know that you get a lot of verbal abuse and you have a lot of doors slammed in your face. Now, I've met some people that say, I'm not into all this softly, softly stuff. You've just got to tell people how it is. Honestly, I think that's just an excuse to be obnoxious. By being aggressive, you might prove more than you expect. You might prove beyond a shadow of a doubt some Catholic doctrine, but you might have also proved to the other person that Catholics are arrogant, angry, and they're just complete jerks. We want to win the argument, but we don't want to lose the soul. We want to take away obstacles, not add new ones. We want to demolish arguments and not people. And if you remember, St. Peter wrote that when we give our answer, we are to do it with gentleness and with reverence. And scripture has many examples of this, many exhortations to gentle speech. In Proverbs, it says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. The manner in which you spoke and the way you made somebody feel will be remembered long after they've forgotten whatever argument you're making. Now, there might be times when somebody will say something offensive to you. They might say something offensive about the Eucharist, our Pope, our Lady, our Lord. Remain calm. Take a breath. 
ask the Holy Spirit for help. And I think this is best exemplified in a story of my childhood. It's from one of Aesop's fables. The wind and the sun were disputing which was the stronger when they saw a traveler coming down the road. The sun said, I see a way to decide our dispute. Whichever of us can cause that traveler to take off his cloak shall be regarded as the stronger. You begin. So the sun retired behind a cloud and the wind began to blow as hard as he could upon the traveler. But the harder he blew, the more closely the traveler wrapped his cloak around him, till at last the wind had to give up. Then the sun came out and shone in all his glory upon the traveler, who soon found it too hot to walk with his cloak on and took it off. I share this story because I think it's a beautiful image of how we should engage in evangelization and in apologetics. When we try and force someone to do our will, to believe what we believe, what happens? Walls go up, people resist all the more. When we attack, they get defensive. Gentleness, kindness, persuasion, and joy are much more effective. We simply need to shine, to radiate the joy and the beauty of Christ and his church. Principle number four. Everyone say, admit when you don't have the answer. Now, I think this is the thing that everybody is most afraid of, being asked a question that they don't know the answer to. We shouldn't be afraid, because it will happen. And when it happens, simply say, that's a great question. I'm not sure how to answer that offhand. Can I get back to you? This demonstrates humility, that you care more about the truth than your position. It's much better than bluffing or coming up with a poor answer. But make sure that you do follow up, though. Make sure you do go looking for the answer and be confident. The Catholic Church has been around for 2,000 years. There is not an objection which has not already been raised. Principle number five, please say, address emotional objections. objections. Not all objections to Christianity, God, and Catholicism are intellectual. Sometimes it's simply that somebody has had a bad experience with the church, a bad experience with a priest or a DRE. When you're discussing a moral issue, like abortion or divorce, you might be speaking to somebody who has had an abortion or a divorce. In fact, I'd say as a good rule of thumb, assume that you are, and don't say anything that you wouldn't say to that person otherwise. You could give all the best arguments in the world, but it wouldn't do anything. You have to deal with that emotional issue first. And that means it's time for empathy. You can rarely talk about the Catholic Church these days without people bringing up the recent sex scandals. Now, before you jump into apologetics mode, before you say there's been radical reform in the church, that now the church is one of the safest places for children to be, and that a few bad apples don't undermine the entire teaching of Christianity and Catholicism, before you do all of that, it's okay to admit that what happened was terrible, was wrong. It's something that you're ashamed of, Principle number six, know when to step away. Know when to step away. (laughs) This is really important, to recognize sometimes when you've reached an impasse or when you've started going around in circles. This is particularly important in social media. A number of times I've been up at 3 a.m. replying to somebody else when I really need to get to sleep. You are called upon to give an answer when it's asked of you. You're called to plant seeds. And sometimes that means you then have to step away. 
Now, sometimes you can do it with an invitation. If you mean speaking about a particular subject, you could say, have you ever read a good Catholic book or heard a good Catholic talk on this subject? Because if not, if I got your book or a talk, would you listen to it? During the questions afterwards, anyone that asks a question gets a book or a CD. I'm all about bribery. <laughs> the last principle, principle number seven, the habits of an apologist. The habits of an apologist. <laughs> what habits should you develop? You should be reading. You should be studying the faith. Sacred scripture, the early church fathers, apologetics works. You need to be growing in your faith constantly. There's a Latin phrase, is nemo dat quod non habit. And it means you can't give what you don't have. You can't give someone answers if you don't know them. You can't share the faith if you don't know the faith. And also concentrate on the kind of apologetics you're likely to need to employ. Do you work with a lot of non-Catholic Christians? You might want to concentrate on Protestantism. Do you work with Muslims? Do you work with atheists? For example, when I moved house, I found out that I was in an area where the Jehovah's Witnesses would often visit. So I immediately swatted up. I got some books and reminded myself of how their theology works. However, don't delay being an apologist until some mythical point in the future when you will be an expert. Honestly, most of my friends who I regard as being the most knowledgeable about the faith, they constantly tell me that they keep finding that there's even more to know than they realized. And that's not surprising because Catholicism is very deep and rich. It's about the fabric of reality and about the infinite God who made everything there's gonna be a lot. So rather than waiting to become an expert, I would encourage you to be a continuous learner. This is what I mean. A few years ago, I was sitting in a church like this and I was praying and I looked at the altar and I saw three letters engraved on the altar, I-H-S. And it occurred to me, I had seen these letters in church architecture throughout my life. I remember when I was an altar server that you also see I-H-S on some of the communion hosts but I had no idea what IHS stood for. So when I left, I did some Googling. I went and found out. This is what I mean by being a continuous learner. Just a little bit, here and there. When questions arise, go looking for answers. Have a holy curiosity. And if you think that this is too much, I would just ask you, how much time do you spend on Facebook and on YouTube watching cats play the piano? or teenagers eating Tide Pods. The world is going mad. But it's not just about increasing in knowledge. It's about learning how to communicate more effectively. And I can't recommend any more strongly Catholic Answers Live, particularly the shows where only non-Catholics are allowed to call in. They have shows called, Why Aren't You Catholic? Why Are You Pro-Choice? Why Don't You Believe in God? And I'd encourage you to listen to those shows, hear the objections, hear the challenges, and think to yourself, how would I respond? And then listen to how the apologists respond. Not just the content of their answer, but the way in which they do it. And you'll see that they do all the sorts of things we've been talking about tonight. Keeping their cool, being welcoming, looking for common ground, asking good questions. And lastly, form a habit of prayer. You shouldn't be talking to people more about apologetics than you are talking to the Lord. Your prayer should outweigh your apologetic work. You should be cultivating the virtues of gentleness and reverence. Because if you don't, your arguments are likely to fall on deaf ears. 
or possibly even do more harm than good. So in conclusion, we've covered a lot of material tonight. We've looked at evangelization. We've discussed apologetics. We've looked at the different kinds of apologetics out there relating to truth, to God, to Jesus, and to the Catholic Church. And I've given you a number of principles that you can follow. However, before we end, I have to give you the best argument. The best argument for truth, Jesus, and the Catholic Church is a saint, a compassionate, loving saint. And this is what you and I are called to be. A non-believer can spend a lot of time arguing about philosophy, history, scripture, but you can't really argue with holiness. This is why for 2,000 years, great saints have converted the world by loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves. How can you argue against St. Damien of Molokai, who spent 16 years in a leper colony? How can you argue against St. Maximilian Kolbe, who volunteered to go to the starvation bunker so that another man would be spared? How do you argue against St. Teresa of Calcutta, who spent 50 years ministering to the sick and the dying on the filthy streets of Calcutta? So with that in mind, I'd like to end with the words of St. Teresa of Avila. Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks, compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are the body. Let's end in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would equip us to always be ready with an answer for the hope that we have within us. Help us to become saints, that as we leave here tonight, you would anoint us with your spirit to be ambassadors to the world. Let our lives shine in the world around us. Help us to live in a way that stands out from the crowd and reveals your love to the world. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.